This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. 2024 is going to be the last human election. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, my friend and senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, the one and only Mike Madrid. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, guys. It's been a little bit of a spell since I've been with you, so it's great to be back on, on track. Feel good about it. And making his roundup debut is John Ward. John is the chief national correspondent for Yahoo News. He has covered American politics and culture for two decades, including a stint as a White House correspondent. He's covered two presidential campaigns and is the host of a podcast called The Long Game. He's also the author of Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation, which is phenomenal. We talked about it in a two-part episode uh, a while back on the feed. I highly recommend you go check that out. John, welcome to the Roundup. Ron, thank you so much. Up first this week, we're going to dive into one of the biggest topics shaking up the political landscape, artificial intelligence. Then we'll discuss J.P. Morgan's purchase of First Republic Bank after it collapsed and what it could mean for the banking industry more broadly. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss President Biden's freedom messaging in his re-election campaign and his move to send troops to the border in anticipation of a major influx of migrants next week. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes, and we'll dive right in after this. Okay, guys. So on the roundup every week, uh, I kick us off by saying that we're going to be discussing the news that's changing the political landscape. And one of the big things that's changing the landscape right now and that we haven't spent a ton of time on is the growth of generative AI, or as Tristan Harris and his colleagues uh, put it, generative large language multimodal models, or GLLMMS, Golems for short. So I wanted to start today by talking about some of the biggest stories about AI and the myriad ways it is already impacting our politics and and what's to come. In late March, Yuval Harari, Tristan Harris, and Aza Raskin wrote an op-ed in the New York Times calling for slower adoption of AI, particularly language models like ChatGPT, so that we can figure out if and how we should be using them. They point out that these will be able to consume every piece of writing humans have ever produced and then push out a flood of writing. Quote, not just school essays, but also political speeches, ideological manifestos, holy books for new cults. You get the idea. 
They argue that we experience reality through a cultural prism, that our political views are shaped by what we read and what we hear from friends, that our sexual preferences can be tweaked by art or religion, but that so far in human history, that culture has been created by other human beings. And now we may be at the point where our culture is defined and generated by non-human intelligence. And that these narratives, that these language models weave can have huge influence over actions. And as an aside, researchers in Germany and Denmark recently published a paper that found that human responses to moral dilemmas can be influenced by ChatGPT and that people might underestimate just how much they were influenced by ChatGPT. So I just want to stop there and I want to um, clarify a little bit about generative large language multimodal models for our audience um, when we say generative, it means that they are creating something new. When we say large language, language doesn't have to mean just English or Farsi. It could mean fMRI scans. It could mean DNA. It can mean sound, images, robotics, or stock market signals. These are all languages. So when we think of large language models, think much bigger than just the spoken or written word. When we say multimodal, we're talking about images, text, video, any kind of modal output. Uh, so however you're thinking about these things, um, multiply it by a factor of 100, and that's how big and complex we're, we're talking about. And it isn't that these things sit in silos. They, as, as one improves, they all improve, and they all learn from each other all at once simultaneously. So it's really hard to overstate just how dramatic a step change this is in the world of computing. So I want to pause there. And uh, Mike, why don't you kick us off um, and explain how you're thinking about the way these models can be used to construct narratives and persuade people? Well, I mean, this is an enormous topic because we are now witnessing as human beings the point at which uh, I think technology and computer capability um, and, and man-made intelligence now starts to surpass the, the rate at which the human brain can function. And I think that's the, that's the, 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 the most intriguing and I would, I would say scariest part of all of this, not because I'm necessarily scared about the technology, which I am, but because it's hard to even put our human minds around what the implications of this are going to be, not in 10 years, not in one year, like happening now in real time. Like we're hinting, we're hitting quantum, quantum pace now, quantum rates where, where technology is going to start growing uh, in a way that, again, human beings aren't necessarily capable or wired to keep up with. Uh, so for politics, boy, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, it's such a dramatic social change in, in, our, in our American style of democracy is really representative of these social and cultural changes. Um, so, so for our political system, which was created a couple hundred and fifty years ago, to keep up with that is is really almost it, it's almost absurd to think that it's going to be able to. So we can start with the cursory things like uh, the creation of political videos, um, not just with the deep fakes, not with just the messaging that wasn't created by uh, human beings or the campaigns. But the 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 rate at which these they could obviously be produced too to just kind of flood flood the zone as it were. The last two election cycles, presidential election cycles, we saw really radical transformations in the way the tactics of campaigns were employed. We were obviously a big part of that with the Lincoln Project. Prior to that, it was Donald Trump kind of dominating the way communication happens. 
Um, and that's really what's going to define communications and, and democracy going forward. Remember, democracy is basically just a big public square. It's the way we communicate. You have to have an agreed-upon set of facts for it to work. You have to have a platform for which those ideas and that language and those, those, uh, those philosophies are discussed. Once you start to see a breakdown of that, uh, it really either no longer works or, or just comes to this grinding halt of, as we've experienced over the past uh, few years here, uh, again, in our own country. This takes it to a whole new level where we're not even trying to address whether or not that is acceptable speech or this is acceptable speech. We, we're going to have to try to figure out or discern in real time whether what we're hearing is even human generated and to what end. And so th- th- that, th- 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 again, the implications of that are just extraordinary. They're enormous. They're going to change the platforms with which we consume information, the, 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 uh, the ability to discern uh, truth. Um, is going to be extraordinarily um, difficult and complicated. Uh, one of the real troubling things about politics is it's, I know this is going to be shocking to listeners, but there's a lot of nefarious actors in this business who aren't looking necessarily to preserve or protect democracy or union. They're interested in advancing their own agendas. And when, when you, we've already seen people, um, you know, dirty tricksters doing what they've been doing to undermine our institutions, this just puts it on on you know on on turbocharge and I, I, again we can, we can and I'm sure we're going to discuss a little bit more throughout the hour uh, uh, on, on what tactically is going to change from a campaign perspective. I'm just having a difficult time wrapping my head around the enormity of of the basic playing field of what that means. It's not just going to be these small tactical things with videos and emails being generated and the volumes and the ideas and the messaging. It's literally the entire playing field and how this is actually done is going to change in very, very short order. Yeah. And just to, just to, you know, give people a sense of just a handful of the tactics that are already in use. Uh, I spoke with Danny Hogenkamp of Grassroots Analytics um, earlier this year. It's a data Democratic data fundraising firm, and he confirmed there's already uh, on the Democratic side um, uh, fundraising firms, grassroots fundraising firms that are using AI to write marketing emails, A/B test them, algorithmically optimize for highest conversions, and of course we know that that leads to the most hyperbolic and incendiary language. Uh, Same same effect that we see on social media. Um, we know that there are bot farms <laughs> that were employed before this technology was even available uh, in the 2020 election, um, designed to uh, create and amplify, um, you know, some of the even even not just foreign actors trying to interfere in our elections, but domestically U.S. actors um, employing bots and bot farms to uh, intervene on social media. Um, so that stuff has already been happening. The tools and technologies that we're talking about now are only going to turbocharge what was already happening before. Um, John, you, in your book, wrote about how Trump set himself as the only source of reality, that he was able to shape what reality was for groups of the American public. How are you thinking about how these tools could improve that ability to distort reality? And I should say, one of the things that uh, Tristan Harris uh, and his colleague uh, said in a presentation is that 2024 is going to be the last human election. So um, two thoughts. One, I want to talk about the ways in which the U.S. and China seem to be diverging in the way they're rea- reacting to this. 
I want to do that first. Um, and I'll come back to the thought about the media. Um, my, my top line, um, thought about the media, uh, is, is that maybe this is a way that maybe AI is, is how local news is resurrected. Um, that would be my thought about AI. Um, and, and so, but I want to talk about China and, and, and the U S first it, it, from what I know, and it's not much, but from what I can observe, it seems like we have very different approaches to this. China seems to be um, limiting the spread of, of or experimentation of the of AI in the um, corporate commercial square, while probably doing a lot of work on it inside the government. Our approach seems to be the opposite. You know, Politico has a piece about the approach in Congress to AI. It's completely chaotic and all over the place. Um, but the, the lawmakers who are dealing with the issue are mostly focused on how to regulate the use of AI inside the government, which seems to me to be the best place to actually work on this stuff. Um, now, I, again, I could be wrong, but it just from what I'm reading in the Tristan Harris piece and, and elsewhere, it seems like the, the main message is if we just continue to let experimentation with this stuff go on without any oversight or regulation or guardrails, we're going to have what's happened with social media over the last several years or decade uh, on like steroids times 10. Um, and so I think that sort of trial run would, would suggest at the very least that, um, you know, it might be the wisest course for the government to put some pretty hard and fast limits on this to the, to the, to the effect of that letter that was sent um, while trying to stay ahead of China uh, in, you know, being able to uh, use this technology and, and, and uh, advance it. But it does seem like we're sowing to the, uh, to the wind in terms of the way that we're, and, and it, you know, I, I'm see, seeing conversation and from tech entrepreneurs and uh, saying, you know, if we regulate this too much, we'll fall behind China. Well, I think the government approach is one way to avoid that. And um, I do worry a little bit that um, this could be, you know, if, if AI turns out to be the thing that um, really does bring society in, in the West to its knees, I mean, it could be one of the um, consequences of sort of an unfettered capitalism. On the on the China point, I've seen a lot of there's a there's a healthy debate going on right now about whether China would surpass us or whether they would like us to pause so that they can get ahead. And the 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 counterpoint to the um, to the argument is um, well, actually, China is not ahead of us, and what they're doing now is fast following everything that we're doing. And so, a slowdown in the U.S. doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to leapfrog us. Certainly, they're you know they've been uh, not too keen on rolling these out publicly because they can't control them. And we know the Chinese regime is all about maximum control. Um, but I have a follow-up question for you about government regulation, which is how do you reckon with how out of touch most lawmakers and especially Congress are when it comes, I mean, Mitch McConnell famously called his Blackberry an email machine, um, this is a man who's trying to construct legislation about net neutrality. How in the world can we trust them to to understand, or even their staffs, to adequately inform them uh, on how to responsibly make rules that 
you know, protect the American people, protect humanity, really, but also uh, keep the United States on a on a you know uh, on an aggressive, competitive posture in technology. I mean, no, it's absolutely a fair point. It's why uh, I think the thrust of that letter from uh, Elon Musk and many others was just to hit the pause button because they know that you know Congress can't act quickly on this stuff. Mike Bennett, the senator from Colorado, has proposed setting up some kind of commission or committee. That's probably the only real way that you know our 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 federal government, our Congress can do anything uh, on something as fast moving as this is just set up as quickly as possible, a panel of experts, bipartisan, obviously, uh, and and set rules ahead of time that give it some level of um, authority, not anything binding, of course, but some sense of, you know, we're, we, we will, you know, take the, take these recommendations very seriously. I think a lot of how seriously the recommendations would be uh, viewed would just go into how well you crafted that mm. um, that committee, but yeah. you know, that, setting up a stand, standalone uh, body whose their only job is to focus on this um, is probably the only way you do you do this. Yeah, I mean, for me, if ever there was a case for industry self regulating, it would be this and now because they know how to do it, and there's a lot of people who are very concerned about it. But the trouble is, Mike. Um, it, these companies, especially the startups, are under enormous pressure uh, to 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 release and release fast and to push this thing, uh, push these tools out as fast as they can go. How does this make you think about the era of capitalism that we're in? Well, I mean, I think John really presented it uh, exactly right. Right? Is this? Is this? Uh, it's almost Marxian. You know, as uh, I'm laughing because Anthony York in the last episode called me a Marxist, but you know, Karl, Karl Marx was not an economist, right? That's all been bastardized. Karl Marx Neither was a John Maynard Keynes, but anyway, yeah, P- uh, Marx was a was a political philosopher, and he was just saying, like, it, he was he was trying to explain uh, technology, not not the economy. And what he's saying is that at a certain point, you hit you hit quantum rates, right? Certain te- technological improvements, which he thought would come about during the industrial age, would ultimately get us to this. Omega point, this end point where where technology would take over, and you know, not to get back into a you know an undergraduate college class to have these discussions in a you know coffee room, uh, coffee house, but the, the, that's what that's where we're at. This is what this is. Yeah. This is yeah. that discussion. Is is this is at a minimum? This is going to, as you said, by a factor of a hundred, increase the rate at which technology is is changing and moving. We are already not constituted, right, to to deal with with technological change, especially as we age out. The human brain just isn't wired that way. It took us millions of years to evolve uh, to the point where we can, you know, where, where we're at now. So it, the, the next six months aren't going to able to, to we're not going to be able to, to to just step up and be able to follow along with what's happening. Um, and I, I don't want to suggest that that's that's. Um, <laughs> That that's a a bad thing. It, it's an it's a we don't know thing. We don't we don't know, and I think that that's what's so unnerving. That's what's so scary about it. And yes, a lot of these companies are under uh, extraordinary pressure. But look, I I I I I'm not sure that even uh, looking at it from the government can the government regulate it right? How, how many how many bad actors or, or lone wolves out there who, who understand this technology? Are going to 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 not take advantage of it. It's kind of like the Manhattan Project, right? You only need a handful of scientists who have the understanding of how to make a bomb, and and it's going to change the entire dynamics and course of world history 
Um, but but they're not going to just sit down and stop and say, oh, wait, we figured out this, this thing and we're, we're not going to do it. These companies are going to keep doing it, whether they're regulated or not. A lot of this is just happening on its own, frankly. And whether you pause for six months, delays it 18 months or 18 days or 18 years, I don't think it's, it's that big uh, in, ter- in terms of the arc or trajectory of where we're going. Look, we're still discussing the ethics and virtues of platonic principles. Okay, the thousands of years later, what makes us think we're going to figure out the ethics or the morality or the impacts of what's going to happen with with generative AI in the next couple of months? Right. Like, I I mean, I I just don't know. You're underscoring just even if even if we did pause and even if there was a an overwhelming appetite to introduce rules of engagement for these tools, we wouldn't know how to agree on the ethics of AI because we can't agree uh, in in many cases, on the ethics of day to day life, um, and I just I, I want to ratchet up the um, uh, the the intensity of the potential risks here. And just to be clear, there are a lot of fantastic things that are going to happen as a result of AI. We're already using it to produce this show on a weekly basis. Um, it's 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 already helping a lot of people. Um, so I don't want to down downplay the the positives here, but. One of the lines that really caught my eye uh, in that piece uh, that we've been discussing was that uh, social media was the first contact between AI and humanity, and humanity lost. And so I was listening to this conversation with Max Tegmark, um, and I want to play this clip for you before we go on. You know, there was a really nice article um, in the New York Times recently by uh, Yuval Noah Harari and and, and um, two co-authors, including Tristan Harris from The Social Dilemma. And they have this phrase in there I love. It said that humanity's first contact with advanced AI was social media. And we lost that one. We now live in a country where there's much more hate in the world where there's much more hate, in fact. And in our democracy that we're having this conversation and people can't even agree on who won the last election, you know. And we humans often po- point fingers at other humans and say it's their fault. But it's really Moloch and these AI algorithms. We got the algorithms and then Moloch pitted the social media companies around against each other. So nobody could have a less creepy algorithm because then they would lose out on alg- revenue to the other company. Is there any way to win that battle back? Just if we just linger on this one battle that we've lost in terms of social media, is it possible to redesign social media, this very medium in which we use as a civilization to communicate with each other, to have these kinds of conversation, to have discourse, to try to figure out how to solve the biggest problems in the world, whether that's nuclear war or the development of AGI. Is is it possible uh, to do social media correctly? I think it's not only possible, but it's, it's necessary. That the AI that constructs news feeds and selects what we see on social media platforms that prioritized the most engagement and the most reaction, increased polarization, eroded our mental health, and is unraveling democracy. And we're now living in a world where lots of people can't distinguish the illusions they see on social media from reality. It's part of why nearly two-thirds of Republicans think Joe Biden didn't legitimately win the 2020 election. Um, And even as more and more admit that there's no solid evidence to support that claim. this framing was really helpful to me thinking about social media as first contact and if you first contact being curation ai 
an algorithm that millions of people are using simultaneously that is increasingly smarter about maximizing the attention that users uh, spend on these platforms, it's, it's gotten extraordinarily intelligent. And the results have been addiction, disinformation, mental health problems, polarization. This, this goes on and on. Maximum engagement means maximum attention, means, as they put it, a race to the bottom of the brainstem. Second contact is creation AI. Not curation, but creation, which could result in reality collapse, fake everything, automated loopholes in law, exponential blackmail, automated cyber weapons, automated exploitation of code, automated lobbying, biology automation, synthetic relationships, just to get the juices flowing. We haven't reckoned with how poorly we adopted social media. How do we correct for that now? when we're about to add a layer of creation AI with these language models, Mike? I mean, that's an interesting way to frame the discussion, right? It's, it's, it presumes that there is a way to adopt it as opposed to the way these things just evolve and whether our character as individuals and as a species is able to utilize these platforms in a way that um, can bring us back to working together and get us back to sort of the empathy and desire to be with one another that is intrinsic in human beings. And maybe that's what's going away. So for example, I'm not sure we had adopted capitalism very well, you know, as, as a platform, there's a hell of a lot of inequality. There's a hell of a lot of injustice, right? And we just kind of accepted the idea that that it just is whoever can get out there first front, you know, fastest, quickest, easiest, most efficient, benefited materially from that. I, I don't know that that's, um, there's any other way to do that. I don't know that you can adopt social media well. I don't know that you can adopt AI well. I don't know that you can adopt any any social change well. You sort of have to, to, to muddle through it uh, and, and work to continually improve it along the way, right? It's that, it's that, it's that fixing the plane while you're flying concept. And that's what's so dangerous about this is it, 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 this technology has the ability to get out so far out front of us that we can't catch up to it or make or answer those questions. I mean, a, a big part of what we're suffering from now institutionally as a country is realizing that if you don't have the character of your leaders willing to, to, to follow the norms and the customs and the traditions and, 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 and the sacredness of our institutions – there's nothing you can build as human beings that's going to prevent that sort of collapse. If, 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 the, if the right people, and it's not even a majority, but if it's the right people in the right place that want to destroy it, they're going to destroy it. This doesn't take much. You don't need many bad actors in this, in this scenario to do something horrible and, 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 and quickly. And again, I, I, I have this tendency to keep going towards the negative and towards, towards the apocalyptic yeah, scenario. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that that will be the case. It may be right. the exact opposite, right? But what I do know is that social media did bring out the worst angels in our nature, in large part because the algorithms realized that we are biologically addicted to fear and anger. And it's why... We as human beings, as a way of defending ourselves out in the savannah, you know, uh, a millennia, many, many millennia ago, 
we, 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 you know, we had to realize that lion's going to come and eat me, right? So I, I, I better be pissed or, or scared or angry in order to get the hell out of there. So biologically, we're wired to, to, to become addicted to that as a preservation measure. Th- this is the end result of that, is something that keeps feeding that biological instinct is going to make us more angry and more mad and more fearful of things that aren't even real after a while. It's just we're so, we're so, we, we've so overloaded our systems and our brains with this, these algorithms on social media that have been, have been, um, you know, directed to, to keep feeding us that, that we are losing our human propensity to work together for our protection. We now see each other as the enemy. The, 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 the this technology is either going to be that on steroids or it's going to figure out a way to help us overcome and, and get beyond that. You mentioned uh, nuclear, you know, the, the the Manhattan Project and the invention of the atom bomb. And, um, you know, some, some people have mentioned that, you know, the difference between that and the emergence of these uh, large language models is that the, the atom bomb couldn't improve itself. Humans didn't have to improve it. These things can improve themselves. But um, John, going back to your point about um, maybe this will lead us to you know a resurgence of local news, there does seem to be a um, you know uh, uh, the potential for a um, maybe a, a desire for human connection on the horizon um, in a in a way that you know certainly synthetic digital life is going to leave more and more people feeling disconnected and empty. And I wonder how you think about what the human response to that is going to be at a social level and how will people look for meaning and connection when it's ultimately not satisfied by, um, by an intelligence that's, you know, dwarfs that of um, (laughs) all of humanity networked all at once. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think if things go in a more negative direction, as we are talking about, uh, I think two <clears throat> qualities that will increase in value will be tangibility and slowness. Um, <clears throat> but before I get to that, um, I, just going, circling back to the to the Manhattan Project, I'm actually texting with uh, uh, somebody <clears throat> right now about this um, who's pretty plugged in on the Hill. Um, who's a Republican, who's, you know, saying, who's giving me a version of the, you know, I, I'd rather the U.S. advance this technology than China. You know, <clears throat> we've never lived in a world where this kind of technology was created by a non-democracy. I'm glad that the U.S. developed nukes and not, you know, the Soviet Union or something. And my point to that person was, well, you know, nukes were a government-controlled process. Again, going back to that point, uh, they, they weren't being developed, you know, uh, by civilians uh, competing with each other to be first on nukes, uh, which I think is a big difference. Um, you know, going back to the to the media, the local news question, tangibility and slowness, when everything's so sped up and, and you really can't trust anything anymore, I just think people, there's going to be an increased value on um, kind of a chain of custody idea. So, um, you know, how close to the physical real world are you? So that's why I think local news will be more and more valuable because these will be reporters and institutions, news institutions on the ground, actually in their communities, actually talking to real people, 
conveying that information, you know, probably still on computers and smartphones, but maybe again, back to uh, physical papers as well. I mean, maybe that's a stretch. I don't know. That's what I'd like to see. Um, but, uh, and so if you can, the question I think will not be whether or not that kind of model for news gathering becomes more valuable. Uh, the, the two ancillary questions are, will there be an influx in financing? We've seen some of that over the last several years, but will there be more money that goes to standing up, you know, community-based uh, public good focused news institutions that would be largely philanthropic money, I would guess, uh, maybe with some government funding. I don't know. And then the second ancillary question would be: Can can we develop networks of these um, you know local news outlets and institutions so that we can build from the ground up, uh, from a local level to a national level, a sense of connected information that's at some point, you know, attached to the real physical world. Um, so funding and networks, I think, are the real questions. Uh, I, I have no, I have no doubt that like local, real world based news gathering is going to be more valuable than ever. But the question is whether it can be built to scale. Yeah, yeah. Has has this technology has this changed the way you think about what you're reading, what you're consuming, at all? A little. I mean, I saw a video of John Tester pushing Cory Booker into a wall the other day. <laughs> and my first thought was, is that real? Because it mm-hmm. doesn't seem real. I still don't know because I don't really care. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, a little bit. I'm starting to doubt things a little bit more. I, I will say I, I talked to somebody recently who said, who passed on a conversation with a media executive. Um, that's about as specific as I should probably get. But like, they, this media executive was saying, you know, once they get AI to the point where they can use it for editing, they're going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it will take something that you've written and then you can ask it to improve it, uh, give it style, tone, notes, tell it to put it in iambic pentameter, and it will do that. And it mm-hmm. does it masterfully. Mike, have you played around with these tools at all? I have. And then it scared me. So I ran away from it, lit my laptop on fire. Uh, yeah, no, I, I have, and I'm intrigued by it. And like I said, I, I, I think that it's look. This is we're going to dramatically change as a society, as a workforce, as a democracy. Uh, you know, everything's going to change. Change isn't necessarily bad. It's usually a little bit torturous. <laughs> you know, it's, it, if human history is a guide, but I, I think there's a lot of good that will come from it too. But I think a lot of people are kind of using the comparison of you know early 2000s, late 1990s when the the internet was kind of coming online and everyone's like, oh, this is going to, you know, we're, we're going to hit that rainbow phase of humanity where we're all going to not have to work or do anything. We can just sort of think and be and and all of this information will be at your you know, fingertips. And, 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 and that's largely, you know, a lot of that is true. I mean, it's amazing how much information we have at the tip of our, our fingers. But as we all know, it's also dramatically amplified a lot of the dark angels of our nature as human beings. And because we're wired to, to go there uh, and focus on that and, and get and click on that and look at that, it, it, is, it is rewiring the way that we view the world and understand the world. And again, this is, this is technology doing its own thing. Um, and yes, I have. Yes, I will continue uh, because I'm just I'm fascinated by what this is going to mean as we enter this new phase of human history, and I don't think I'm being too sweeping or epic by saying that that's what's going on. I no, that, believe that's, that. That's yeah, that's exactly where we are. 
I want to talk about this banking story. Um, there's so much more that we could get to on the AI front. Uh, I wanted to, there's a, there's a Supreme court case, by the way, um, that's coming up, that's going to deal with fair use and all of these, you know, all of these models have essentially been trained on tons of copyright, copyrighted material. And now they're using those to generate new things. And there's a massive legal question about whether that's legal. Do they owe those copyright holders compensation for the training data? It's, it's a huge, huge implications, um, here, but, uh, to be continued. Um, on Monday, JP Morgan, the largest bank in the U.S., got even bigger. They acquired First Republic Bank, which became the third regional bank to fold this year. First Republic took a big hit uh, when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed earlier this year. They lost $100 billion in deposits in a bank run in March. 11 banks, including JP Morgan, chipped in $30 billion to help First Republic in an attempt to save it, but it was only able to limp along for a few more weeks. According to the Wall Street Journal, J.P. Morgan outbid three smaller banks and were the only ones to buy substantially all of, of First Republic at a competitive price. That includes mortgages that other banks didn't want. Um, the FDIC prioritized the bid to buy everything to avoid the uncertainty of any leftover assets. But there are now concerns that because of growth and consolidation in the banking industry, is this sounding familiar to anybody? We're creating banks that risk financial stability. Since the Great Recession, 2008, officials have sought to limit bank mergers to stop these really big banks from getting even really bigger. But they set those concerns aside here because the largest banks really have an unmatched ability to step in during these times of financial stress. The FDIC, which orchestrated the plan to seize First Republic and then sell it, uh, usually must accept the bid that imposes the smallest cost on its insurance fund. And J.P. Morgan's offer cost the, cost the FDIC about $13 billion, which is better than the other offers, um, but not by much. Uh, Representative Rokana said the deal wasn't an ideal solution, but that the FDIC, quote, the FDIC is coming in when you have a fire alarm fire, and they're coming in when there's a forest fire, and they put out the fire, so I support that. It's unfortunate it came to that. All of this comes after J.P. Morgan brought in about $50 billion in new deposits from panicky customers who moved to that bank after March's failures. And at the end of the first quarter, they had $2.4 trillion in deposits. That's out of the total $17 trillion in total U.S. bank deposits. Um, How are you both thinking about the tension between limiting the consolidation in banking, but also preventing these bank failures from having a bigger impact on the industry as a whole, Mike? And and at what point do consumers start feeling like we're back in 2008 territory again? Oh, we're we're already deep into 2008's territory. We're, we're um, look three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history have happened in the last eight months, and, and we're not talking about it. <laughs> the, the, the size of the bank losses, by the way. Uh, basically surpassed some of the collapse of these major institutions that were happening in 2008. Like the banking system is in deep shit. Like, and we're not talking about it. I can't figure out exactly why the fed, you know, is, is, has kind of these, you know, the, these small weapons to, to sort of, um, to combat what the, what's happening. And this this flu that everybody thought would likely be contained, myself included, with Silicon Valley Bank, doesn't seem to be contained to these small regional banks. There's there's a much 
larger problem. And the Fed doesn't have the tools other than to continue with the full faith and credit of the, of, of, of the U.S. government to back up this play. And, and that full faith and credit only works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, um, you know, I, then you got to hope that AI saves us <laughs> because it's, something's going to have to save us, right? Like I'm in Mexico right now and, and the peso is strong against the dollar. And, and gold prices are surging. Like, what does it tell you when the peso is doing good against the dollar and gold prices are surging? Like, those are not good, mm. you know, signs for, for the dollar and, and the efficacy of, the, of, of, of U.S. currency, right? We, we've got to be mindful that a lot of things are, are not good. And the, the consolidation of these big banks, um, I, 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 look, I'm not sure that it's, uh, I, I don't think it's a good thing, but I also think it may be a necessary thing because at a certain point you are going to need a few people steering us through this extraordinary debt bubble and deflating currency situation that we're at because i don't know any other way out of it it's sort of like this this hobbesian choice between um, the fed raising rates and throwing us into a recession or dealing with crippling inflation there's no good choices here but you have to do what's necessary and it's why I've I've been saying raise rates, raise rates, raise rates. You know, keep going, throw the damn economy into recession because otherwise, in, inflation eats at the whole credibility of the currency itself. And if that happens, then I, I you know there's I, I don't I don't know what that world looks like. But our banking system is in is is in much greater trouble than people think that it is. And it's really yeah. if you if you if you peel back enough layers of the onion, what is really under underlying that is there's a lack of confidence in the economic institution. That's what it is. Not a whole hell of a lot has changed behind the fact that investors are saying, we need to get the hell out of the dollar. We need to, get, we need to find other places to yeah. put our capital because we're chasing these returns and we're putting them in these places that don't make sense given, given this inflationary cycle that we're in. We're forced into a risk-based economy because you're – Dollar by design on a good day is 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 evaporating by two percent. Right now, it's somewhere at, at what are we at eight percent, something like that. Still hasn't cooled much. Um, and the two thousand eight crash, uh, John, was a major factor in the formation of the Tea Party movement. Right, the anger over Wall Street bailouts when people lost money really galvanized support for this. How do you think about a new wave of uncertainty or frustration with the banking system? And and could it create a similar movement on the right or fuel it in some way? And how do you expect the uncertainty around the banking industry to impact politics at a larger level? Well, I'm curious. Mike said that we're in similar territory to 2008. I'm curious why things didn't, and, and this just shows how little I know about it, but I'm curious why things didn't escalate like they did in 2008. Um, and I'm also curious what you guys think about you know, how close we might be to losing reserve currency status. Um, um, but, you know, if if there were to be another major economic crisis, I mean, that the, you, you don't you don't have to read more than, I don't know, two history books to see that that's often, you know, produces a lot of political change and instability. And in fact, you know, you can probably just look at the last decade plus. I mean, Part of Trump's election was tied to the 2008 economic crisis for sure. But what do you, I mean, I remember 10 years ago or or so, 
uh, I mean, 2010, 11, 12, I actually wrote a lot about debt. Uh, you know, you had the Bull Simpson um, commission. I talked to Paul Ryan a lot back then. Uh, Tom Coburn wrote his book called The Debt Bomb. And then for a couple of years, everybody just said, well, looks like all those warnings were uh, about, you know, um, about debt and, and then quantitative easing and uh, inflation. People were saying, well, it looks like we're none of those warnings came to pass. Did we just delay the inevitable? Like, what's your y'all's feeling about that? I mean, my, I have lots of thoughts about this, and Mike and I have talked about this quite a bit. Um, but I, I think one of the things that frustrates me about um, the way most media cover banking and the finance sector in general is in a in a really inaccessible way for most people. Um, it's it's complicated uh, when you're talking about quantitative easing and interest rates and the effect on the economy, like. The, the the economy put in air quotes is is uh, I don't think it's often talked about in a way that most people can understand, but especially when it comes to what the dollar is in the first place and why the reserve status of the dollar and treasuries as an asset are essentially the United States' last superpower, and um, I think we don't talk about it for uh, for a for a reason. I think, I think the U S government doesn't like to talk about that as a, as a, as it, as its superpower, because especially now it's under threat. Um, a lot of the rest of the world. So when we have to print money to pay our bills, which we do all the time, and, uh, and now we're gonna have to this, this, this debt ceiling showdown over whether or not we should continue borrowing more money to pay our bills. We have to expand the money supply. And when we expand the money supply, we, necessarily devalue all of the money that everybody's holding and and the people who are holding the most of it the foreign foreign governments treasuries and dollars uh essentially we're 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 evaporating their 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 money away we're taking value from the rest of the world in order to pay our pay our bills here um i don't think that's sustainable forever and uh and i think that the sovereign debt crisis is um is a is a big looming danger here, and it's why China is trying to uh, expand adoption of the of their digital currency, but the, the yuan. Uh, and I and I think I think we don't talk about it because it's such a big threat, and I think it's underlying um, the Biden administration's push toward a central bank digital currency, which will make it even more easier to um, to manipulate currency um, rapidly. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean that, that's what I think. <laughs> well, well, I mean, isn't isn't it fair to think to to speculate? Maybe China has said this that one of the one of their chief goals long term is to displace us as having reserve currency status. Yes, for sure. Yes. Yeah, that's the emer- that would be the emergence of a new empire. This makes right. you know the, the 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 this century, the Chinese century, is when that happens. And the Saudis are also already publicly saying. Hey, yeah, let's let's we'll we'll consider doing some of our you know final exchanges in, in yuan. The BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, Saudi Arabia, are now the, trying to establish a currency that they will use amongst themselves that is not the dollar. The, and that's essentially the end of the American empire. I mean, it may not look like it for a while, but that's essentially what it what it would mean. Um, 
look, I, the, the yuan too. Look, I, I have less faith in in the yuan and what it's pegged at, and what 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 they're manipulating the hell out of their currency. I mean, sure. they've been doing that for a long time. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're not doing the same thing for the reasons that Ron said. Is we have gotten into this cycle, uh, really, this century of just inflating our way out of all of these debt problems. It's just print more money, print more money, print more money. It, it's textbook, right? Like you were saying, you could look at a, just a couple of history tip books to tell you how that ends. In fact, most empires sort of end this way. Is, All it, fiat is, currencies is, end. And, and there's nothing pegging our currency, but, and again, this is really important, the full faith and credit of the United States. The, the, the charade lasts as long as we believe in it. And it, once we don't, then we don't. And I, I think when you start to see some of these political indicators like Two-thirds of Americans think that life was better in the 1970s than it was now. And a, the a wide majority of Americans believe that their children's lives will be worse than their own. Like these are these are signs that public the, the American people don't have confidence in their own system, their own government, their own vision, their own nation going forward. And 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 so the confidence in the currency is reflected in that, especially when all we are doing is is putting out a hope and a prayer and saying, well, we're America. We're American. We're the we're the hegemon here, and so use our currency, and that only lasts until it doesn't last. And and there's a uh, there's a lot of signs saying um, there's there's a lack of confidence in 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 our currency, let alone our banking system. These bank runs, the idea that bank runs can happen now very dramatically, very quickly, like over a weekend, right? Silicon Valley Bank disappears, and then First Republic catches the flu, and then all these other regional banks start to, to start to go. Where is are we susceptible? And you are because Twitter says you are. Like that's a that's a sign <laughs> that we're not dealing with 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 you know a, 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 a grounded currency other than faith. And that's a dangerous thing in in the digital age because you know we're not we're not talking about a couple of bankers in New York reconciling balance sheets over the phone. We're talking about Twitter and attacks. And when you talk about the effects of of generative AI driving a message on how to attack a currency, my God, that's you know that that's where things start to get scary too. Is you have nefarious actors who are going to be attacking the currency, which is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, by the way. Is a lot of that panic that created the run was literally big players on Twitter saying, "Get your money the hell out! This thing's this thing's you know not not based on anything," and 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 it's really. The underpinnings of Silicon Valley Bank, were, were, you know, there were some fundamental problems with the investments in, in, in T T bonds and, and, and rising rates, and I get that. But the reality is, it was still meeting all of the federal guidelines for for, for loan to value. They were sitting on ten percent deposits. It's just, you know, in a weekend things changed, and a run killed them. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. Let's talk about what we're watching. John, what did you bring for us? I mean, the thing to watch right now, undoubtedly, in my opinion, is just where things go on the debt ceiling over the next few weeks. It's, uh, it's the story of the month and and maybe the year. Yeah. How do you think that plays out, John? I think Democrats will probably explore options of going around Republicans, and that's where we'll probably be for the next few weeks. And I think there's a pretty good likelihood of some kind of, you know, um, economic mini crisis. Um, I don't know how severe, but um, 
both sides are kind of so locked in that I think the, the chances are good that we have some real economic problems because of it. And I think once that happens, that'll probably be when a deal is made. If Democrats can't go around with the discharge, I think it's the discharge petition uh, Van Hollen came up with last fall. Uh, I, interv- I interviewed him at the time about that. Um, there's some other sort of executive branch, uh, you know, maneuvers they could also do potentially. I don't know. They lose Mansion and Cinema, right? Um, again, I think that's maybe where if we're into an economic crisis, maybe not. I don't know. Hmm. Okay, Mike, what do you got? Watching, I think as Washington Post broke this story this morning on Clarence Thomas getting uh, tuition paid for uh, dependent by Harlan Crow to a boarding school. Looks like Harlan was paying for more than just vacations and and a luxurious lifestyle. He's also paying for kids to go to school now. Uh, look, I, I mean, uh, Clarence Thomas uh, is uh, will be remembered for a lot of things in history, but I think first and foremost. The, the absolute corruption of the Supreme Court as an institution, the credibility of it um, is, uh, I, I think it's irreparably damaged now. To, to have a Supreme Court um, justice so clearly on the take and so clearly hiding it and not reporting it, but just the flagrancy with which it's just callously uh, disregarded in this sort of, you know, emperor status, which which they they get, and 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 I, look, I'm not suggesting he's the first, but I think the uh, the egregiousness of it and the complete lack of of contrition about it, or even the need to be transparent about it, the shamelessness surrounding it. Um, you know, you, you it, in a, in with three branches of government, you have to have at least one branch that has the confidence of the country. And to see its numbers down, like around big tobacco, right? It, it's like it's 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 shameful. And I wish Roberts would do something more vocal about it because that time has long passed where he needs to quit worrying about the personalities of the members and start protecting the institution in a, in a very vociferous, determined way. I mean, you have to believe he's trying something and just doesn't have the numbers right now. Because uh, he does, we know he cares about the public trust in the court. I mean, that's kind of one of his big things. And um, yeah, there's no good answer for why the court can't come up with its own ethics standards. Um, and and if they don't, I think Congress will end up passing some. Yeah. Then 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 do we end up in a crisis over whether they have the authority to do that? I mean, maybe, but I think it was uh, what's what's the guy. Um, uh, there was a conservative law scholar, uh, Lawrence Tribe, and this mm. conservative law legal scholar, uh, the guy who testified before the 9-11, not 9-11, the January 6th commission, who advised Pence. Oh. Um, I'm blanking on his name. but Yeah, I know who you're talking um, about. I but he was saying that, there, that this really isn't that big of a dispute mm. over, okay. over sort of separation of powers, or it shouldn't okay. be. So, uh, yeah, I mean, some people will say that, but. Yeah. Um, I brought a really quick story just to put on people's radar, but I think maybe we'll have a longer conversation about it at some point. But in the president's budget, he is proposing something called the DAME tax, which is the digital assets mining energy tax. And he's proposing a 30% tax on cryptocurrency mining. 
And um, this is uh, one of the most misguided and ill-informed and ignorant things that I've seen that my administration do, or it's just downright malicious and I can't tell which um, yet. Uh, but essentially the theory goes that they're consuming a lot of energy and so they're contributing to uh, climate change, but it vastly misunderstands the role of Bitcoin mining and the energy grid. And it's exactly the opposite, actually. Um, <laughs> if we are going to transition to uh, more renewable energy sources powering our grid, we have to stabilize the volatility of renewable energy sources because right now they're extraordinarily volatile. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And so what happens is there's so much wasted energy. Bitcoin mining uses the cheapest and otherwise wasted energy. And so what you have is these miners who are essentially the buyer of last resort of any available energy that are able to um, uh, decrease their load or turn off within a couple of minutes whenever the energy is needed to power the grid. And so this symbiotic relationship between the miners and the renewable energy sources means that the, that the renewable energy producers are able to keep going and become profitable and stabilize the, their contribution to the grid it's a it's a very healthy productive relationship that isn't actually using in this case any fossil fuels and then in the case of fossil fuels bitcoin miners are able to go to places where methane gas would otherwise be flared uh releasing enormous emissions um uh, because their methane gas is is very dense uh in greenhouse ga- in um uh in terms of its contribution to greenhouse uh greenhouse gas effect and they capture that, fuel the miners, and produce value for the plants that they couldn't otherwise uh, ship because it would be too expensive. So it just it it's just a vast misunderstanding of the way the industry works. Um, and again, I can't tell if it's ignorant or malicious, but I have to understand. I have to believe that there are people over there who know better. And uh, it really frustrates me to see something like that. Uh, by the way, the judge was Michael Ludig, I think. So you're yep, talking about that's right. Okay, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about some of the moves Biden's making in his re-election campaign, where can everybody find you on the internet, John? Um, I don't know what to say to this anymore. Um, <laughs> I guess Substack? I don't know. Border Stalkers, Substack. I'm on Twitter, but whatever. Uh, J-O-N-W-A-R-D-1-1. But Border Stalkers, Substack. JohnWordWrites.org? JohnWordWrites.org is my website. So maybe that's the best place. Yeah. Cool. Mike? Yeah. I, you know, you can find me if you need to get a hold of me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, my Twitter is uh, at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.